0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
1: He's Mike Jeminski, uh, played in the NBA, uh, drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks. He only played one year for them, right? No, you, that's the opposite. I was drafted by the Nets in the '80s. Oh, oh I'm sorry, I got it backwards. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I finished my I finished my career two uh, two months up in Milwaukee, so I don't even know if I qualify for a Jersey. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, my seven years, six and a half years with, with the Nets, and then four years with Philly, and four years with uh, with the Hornets. So it was a it was a good career. And you know, back then, Howard, I think when I finished playing, only. 35 or 40 players had ever played more than 14 years in the league. But now the, you know, the modalities that they have and the nutritionists and everything available guys are playing 20 years.
1: I had done a bunch of college games uh, and then uh, a guy by the name of Bob who was president of the Nets called me and asked me if I wanted to uh, do the radio broadcast of the Nets. And Mm -hmm. I knew Bob from his days at Princeton Uh, where I first started. And I said, absolutely. I thought this would be a great opportunity to get into the NBA, but the Nets weren't very good back then. Uh, As I recall, uh, I'm trying to remember that coach. He was a pen guy, uh, Dave Wall. Dave Wall. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Wall. And I remember coming back from a trip and I want to say it was from Atlanta. And then we flew back. We didn't charter. We flew back commercial (laughs) And yep. it was a late flight from Atlanta at 1130 at night and a bunch of us standing in the back of the plane, uh, Bill Raftery, myself, Steve Albert, who was doing the TV with Bill and Dave Walls said he was going to go into Harry Welton's office and then and, and, and complain about some things. And we told him to Dave, you might want to think about that before you do it. And, you know, Dave was very strong willed, mm-hmm. uh, Ivy League educated, obviously, He went into Harry Weltman's office the next day and got fired. (laughs) So that was the end of that.
0: Well, and, you know, what I remember with Dave, and uh, I I was traded not long after that, um, with, you know, Dave came from the culture of Pat Riley and the Lakers. And he felt like I think he had the same cachet that that Riley had. And, uh, you know, that's just didn't transfer with him. Um, you know, I remember him telling me and Buck that, you know, we had to go in and and change certain things in the locker room. And, you know, we looked at him and say, hey, you know, we're not Magic and we're not Kareem. We don't have that kind of sway in this particular locker room. So, <laughs> you know, he, he was just used to a different culture. And, uh, and you know, of course, Harry Weltman came in and, and had his ideas about building the franchise. So it's not unusual for a new GM to jettison
1: the coach and get his
0: guy in there.
1: You mentioned Buck, it's Buck Williams. Uh I, I thought the world of Buck. I thought he mm-hmm. aside from being a terrific ball player, a tough rebounder, excellent defensive player, and could score a bit. Uh he was also a great guy. Uh, yep. I love being around him. Uh we had a good rapport, uh Buck and I and and his wife uh and my wife and, and we had a, a nice rapport and I, I kind of missed that a little bit. But Thinking about then, I remember I think it was after you got traded to Philadelphia. Uh, the Nets go out to uh, Utah when they had uh, Malone and Stockton, mm-hmm. and I and I'm working. I'm working the road games alone. So halftime, um, they're up thirty, and I'm thinking to myself, "How can I? What am I going to do for the second half? Can I just call the game because this game's over?" And so I kind of thought about it and I got an idea. I'm looking at the owner of the Utah Jazz. I forget his name. He's a big car dealer. Larry Miller. Larry Miller. He was sitting courtside. And he's got everything at the refreshment stand in front of him. Box of popcorn, soda, peanuts, everything. And so I decided to do play-by-play of Larry Miller eating. And... <laughs> The fans sitting around or on broadcasting the game are getting a big kick out of this. Well, they Utah winds up winning the game big, and the next uh, day or two, I go through the Nets office and I see Bob Cassio, the president of the team, and he stops and he says, "Hey, you got a minute, coming in the office?" I go, "Oh, I'm in trouble." I sit down. He goes, "I listened to the game the other night. I never laughed so much." <laughs> he said. We were not going to be in that game, and you make you make garbage uh, into something at least listenable. And I thought about that for a minute, and I said, "Well, I don't plan on doing that again." You got to make this team better. And now look where the Nets are now.
0: Well, and uh, you know, I, I still have trouble putting Brooklyn in front of them. And uh, yeah. I, I tell you, that team has been more traveled in a more confined period, a space of uh, geography than any team in the league, starting with Long Island, and then going to. New Jersey and my rookie year, we played down in Piscataway while the Brendan Burn Arena was being built and then there and then Newark and then over to Brooklyn. So, you know, the, the thing that's more troubling to me Howard about the sport and it's, it's also in the college game, it's almost become a mercenary sport where, and, that, and I mean that from the top stars in the game that are will go and play and then they'll talk to their their guys and they'll try to put together another team. And, uh, you know, and it's just, there's, there's no, I I can't imagine Michael Jordan flitting around to four or five different teams or to, you know, or uh, magic or, you know, anybody like that uh, or Larry bird. Um, It just seems like uh, there's, it's, it's a very transient sport now. Um, and it's happened in college, too, with the with the draft portal and uh, um, just, uh, I, I don't know, there, there just doesn't seem like a team is together long enough for the fan base to wrap their arms around. Uh,
1: but, but one thing before we get to the, the final four, uh, the Nets at that time were owned by, as they referred to them, the Secaucus Seven, uh, seven businessmen. Uh, and and I, I, I spoke to each and every one of them during the course of my time. Not one of them had an idea what they were talking about, but I mean, as it relates to basketball. But they own the team, so what are you going to do? Let's go to the Final Four. You've got FAU, you've got San Diego State, Miami, and UConn. Based on, I mean, how in what order would I put them in? Uh, I probably would put UConn at the top. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I I would look. Um you know, I
0: I think this is kind of a microcosm of what the year has been like and that there really has not been a dominant team per se. I mean, there were a lot of teams that went in and out of the top 10, certainly a lot of teams that went in and being ranked number one. Um, You know, with Purdue's early exit early in the season, I thought they were a prohibitive favorite, but that changed over the course of time. Um, You know, I think that UConn and Miami both have been in the top 10. I think UConn is the, the best team um, of the four that's, you know, that's there right now. But I mean, based on what has happened in the tournament and the season, I don't know that there's any way to handicap these games. I mean, I can look at them statistically and give you an idea of what I think, but who knows what the outcome is going to be.
1: Uh, FAU and that's it. it's kind of near where I live they are the quote-unquote Cinderella team Mm -hmm. this year Uh, at some point the glass slipper falls off Cinderella I'm wondering FAU San Diego State uh, look FAU's won 35 games this year now you may question the competition but what do you look at in that game
0: I think it's pitching against hitting I mean Florida Atlantic is a fabulous offensive team um, you look at their numbers, 45% of their field goal attempts are threes and they've got seven guys, Howard, who have t- attempted over 103. So it's not like you can lock in on even two or three guys. Um, they're a great offensive team and they're really not a bad defensive team, but you go to San Diego state, uh, they are one of the elite defensive teams in the country uh they're just the defensive efficiency 89.9 uh which is fourth in the country um they're not a great shooting team they don't shoot a lot of threes so most of their offense comes from the free throw line and and inside the three-point line um you know they've got eight players who are averaging more than six points a game but only one guy averaging 12 over in double figures so they're they're really balanced, um, but they they just lock you down and are very, very physical. So I think, you know, for Florida Atlantic, they, they just they've got to they've got to make their threes. And also San Diego State, not a great shooting team, but a fabulous offensive rebounding team. So they've got to really control the boards.
1: What chance would you give Miami against UConn? Um, good chance. I, I mean, I think that,
0: you know, Pack and Wong are one of the best backcourt tandems in the country. Um, and I, and, and, uh, Nigel Pack has really blossomed. I think he is a big, big factor in this postseason run for them because he's started to feel a lot more comfortable playing with Wong. It took him some time to do that. Now the, the big issue that I see is the size issue, uh, that UConn has, uh, the big advantage, Inside with Sunogo, um, Klingman coming to Klingman, come off the bench. Um, They're a terrific offensive rebounding team. Now, I love Norchad Great, He's been a great addition to that team, but he's an undersized guy. Kind of how will throw away back. He reminds me a little bit of Wes Unseld coming out of Louisville. 6'7", 240, undersized center, but is very athletic. Um, Is a great rebounder, great offensive
1: rebounder. If he gets in foul trouble, though, it could be big trouble for Miami. Talking with Mike Jaminsky, who has, knows what it's like to play in a Final Four, knows what it's like to play in the NBA. I mean, you played almost a 1,000 games in the mm-hmm. NBA. Uh, look, a lot of guys that have talent in college, for whatever the reason, they fall short in the pros. What's the thing that, that you would encourage a player coming out of college into the NBA? Uh, you know, a player, not a superstar. But a guy who's a good player going into the NBA, what's the what? What's some of the things you you kind of advise them? Well, I you know
0: I I can't speak for the guards, Howard, but you know I think for bigs now, um, your perimeter offense is really important, and uh, you know range beyond probably eighteen feet if you can shoot the three, even better. Um, you know I I found my the thing that that really allowed me to play in the league and flourish in the league is being able to create my own offense. I had two shots that I could always rely on. I had a jump hook, which I could shoot against anybody. Uh, and I had range to 18 feet. And uh, in a lot of our offense with, you know, with Buck Williams, with the nets and uh, with Charles Barkley in Philly, uh, we played a high low set where I was out above the free throw line a lot. And I could make that shot. And if teams didn't honor it, you know, I was, I was capable. I was a, excellent free throw shooter. So, you know, you get into the league, it, it doesn't always translate. Um, I mean, it doesn't always translate from high school to college. So it's, it's a pyramid and you know, you peak in the NBA, but creating your own, being able to get your own shot is really important. And then it's a matter of who you can defend.
1: You mentioned Charles Barkley. Uh, I've interviewed him several times. He's always been fun to interview. Uh, I mean, here's a guy that if I'm not mistaken was cut from the Olympic team when Bobby Knight was the coach of the Olympic team. I mean, think about well, that.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's actually a funny story that in, uh, in 84, uh, Bar- Charlie was the best player in camp. They had the, they had the preliminary camp and Knight wasn't enamored of his weight. And he told Charles to, uh, if he came back at 265, that he was a lock to be on the team. He was the best player on the court in trials. So when they invited the 20 or so guys back from, from uh, you know, to cut down to the final team, Charlie showed up at 305, <laughs> which, which was about his summer weight. And he could still back then play it that way. So Knight cut him. I mean, that, that was... It wasn't because of a lack of talent. It was because of too much weight in Knight's eyes. That was the defining factor.
1: What was the, the, the thing? And I mean, Charles, look, I mean, you couldn't move him off the blocks because of his size, but mm. I mean, he played on some really good teams with some really great players. Dr. J obviously uh, in Phoenix, when they were really a top team, lost to Michael Jordan. What else is new? So did everybody else uh, in the finals one year, uh, but What's it like playing with a guy like Charles? Is he, aside from his talent, is he demanding? Is he easy to play for? How would you categorize it? He tested me when I first got there. And uh I I passed the
0: test. Uh, I won't tell you how, but basically told him he was full you know what, and let's just play ball. And, you know. And we we are fat. we're friends to this day. He's like a brother to me. All those guys are Rick Mahorn. Um, you know, I, I played with Mo Cheeks and, you know, in 89, 90, we won the Atlantic Division and beat the Celtics with, uh, you know, with their big three. So we had some great teams and we were a very close knit group. Um, and, I, you know, Charles has been fabulous to me my whole life. And I've had, you know, my struggles in the last few years and he's been a big supporter of mine and our friendship couldn't be closer. I mean, I've, I've really been blessed to play with
1: a, a lot of great people. Mike Jeminski, uh let's let's talk, Mike. About uh, you look at, at at what's going on now in the NBA, and is there a player out there, uh, and you can say John Morant, that makes you go, "Wow." Well, I think
0: Howard. You know, people people ask me, you know, what do you like better, the pro game or the college game? And I have a tough time explaining to them that I really like the 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 college game i like the atmosphere i love when the students are there i love everything about the game day and game experience but rarely is there something that happens in a college game where i'll go wow um in in the nba that probably happened five six seven times a game and that's just the the talent level you know watching steph curry um he makes you go, wow, you know, John ja, ja Morant, the thing he does, Kevin Durant, um, even for all, you know, for all the baggage that comes with him, Kyrie Irving, some of the things that he does. I mean, there are, you know, you could go on down the list and but that's the wow factor is for me, What's because I, you know, I played in, a, in an era when it was a wow factor, you know, <laughs> every every night out on the floor um so that, that's really the difference for me I can't say you know I, I can't even narrow it down to 10 players who make me do that sit, <laughs> sit up and take notice in the league
1: you sit there I I know I my wife thinks I'm nuts I'll sit there at an NBA game and not call the game but go you know what you see watching it on television you see certain things you know why did he make this pass why does a guy drive to the basket get within three feet of the basket and kick it out for a guy shooting a three Uh, I don't know if that's the thing that bothers you very much, but I look at that and I'm wondering, look, coaches can take it up to a point, but when you're out on the floor, it's on you. Yeah. and, And I
0: think that, you know, so much of, so much of that level of coaching is managing personalities. And I've always been of the opinion that it's more difficult to, to coach talent than it is to coach a mediocre team. Um, you know, Phil Jackson was a master of uh, he he got Michael to buy in and to trust his teammates, and that's when Chicago started winning. You know, before that, Michael would win the scoring championship and they wouldn't win anything. Um, you know, the Lakers, the you know, the Pistons. It's about managing egos, Chuck Daly. Um and you know, I, I think that's the same now. Although for me, I mean that's so, you know, we talked about. The three point shot is valued more than anything. And, and for me, you know, I watch the game and this, you dribble up and down and you shoot threes, you know, being a rebounder is easy these days because there's virtually no offensive rebounding presence at all. Uh, you know, a guy, you know, Joel and stand there and the ball will drop into his hands and he'll start to break. And then maybe he'll trail and shoot a three. So, uh, you know, to me, I, I missed post play and even not just from centers, but from power forwards and from guards in general, you know, the game is open. Now they like to keep the middle open for driving, uh, purposes. So I say it's, I watch it just because, uh, it's, it's different and I'm almost learning a new sport watching it.
1: You mentioned Chuck Daly, one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, he was there the last two years that I was with the Nets. Chuck was a coach, had him in the playoffs both years, Mm uh, I learned more about the NBA from Chuck Daly than anybody. He had an, a, a complete understanding of the psychology of the NBA player. And no. it, it, it carried him. Look, the great, the, the piston teams that won titles. But, I mean, he took a so-so Nets team and got them to the playoffs with Derek Coleman, Kenny Anderson, and the late Drazen Petrovic, who was, I mean, Del Curry, uh, uh, Steph Curry is the best three-point shooter in the game. Probably all time, but Drazin Petrovic was pretty good.
0: Yeah, no, I, you know, Chuck was, and I was, was arguably the perfect coach for the dream team in 92. Yeah. You know, to, to the, not that he had to do much with that group, but, uh, you know, still, I, I thought that was a fabulous fit. <laughs> you know, his philosophy of, especially with the Pistons, of whoever was hot got the ball and got the ball and got the ball until they missed two shots, then they went somewhere else. And, you know, riding the hot hand was a philosophy of his that I love, but a story that I really loved about Chuck. And when he was down in Orlando, Chuck Daly used to watch the, the betting line every day. And if Vegas had his team as an underdog for more than two weeks in a row, he went to the front office and asked for changes. <laughs> because he said <laughs> Vegas thinks we stink we need to get better <laughs> and that was a point in his career where we could do that and you know as far as the Pistons yeah great great team but they were the first team to charter and that was a huge advantage yes them charter them chartering before anybody else did really benefited them in those two
1: championship years a couple of quick things uh you know a guy named Michael Korn pretty well Mm-hmm. uh mike was uh, my color broadcaster uh, uh my analyst when i was doing the nets games on radio and he told me some stories uh, he told me a story about daryl dawkins uh who <laughs> was a piece of work uh and i'm trying to remember the coach uh the nets at that time um it'll come to me uh there was a game when uh the, the nets were down 20 at halftime and they go in the locker room and the coach says we gotta play hard we gotta play hard we're not playing hard enough we are not playing hard enough." And Daryl Dawkins raised his hand and said, coach, I done played 800 minutes so far this year. I'm tired. And all these other, they're all tired, too. So we're going to do what we got to do. But you got to lighten up on us. And the whole locker room erupted in laughter. Second. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was Daryl. And, uh, you know.
0: I was his backup, and that was the best job in the league because a lot of nights he would just, he'd just pick up two fouls early in the first quarter and then a third foul early in the second quarter. And, you know, I wound up playing 30, 35 minutes a night. Um, I, But I remember one night, Stan Olbeck was the coach during that stretch. And, That's the uh, guy,
1: yeah.
0: And, and John Killalay was an assistant uh, with him. He was, he was a Boston Celtic assistant under Tommy Heinsohn. And Daryl had one of the the stars in the planet's were aligned that night we played Cleveland and Daryl had like 35 and 19 rebounds. He was as dominant as I'd ever seen him play. So we come into the locker room after the game and, and killer goes up to him and he's trying to pump him up You know, he's trying to draw this out of Daryl and says, you know, D that was, he had this Boston accent. You were, you were phenomenal tonight. <laughs> you know? And Daryl, without missing a beat, looked at him and says, don't expect that every night. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it was Mike uh, would tell me a bunch of things about things that happened in the locker room that obviously made me laugh. But, uh, you know, he, he we go into Petrovich was on the team. We go to Charlotte. And before the game, Del Curry is warming up. And I went over to him and I said, um, would you consider yourself the best three point shooter in the league? He goes, no. Uh, Reggie Miller? No. He said, that guy right over there. And he pointed to Petrovich. He said, that guy is the best three-point shooter I've ever seen. But a little quick note about Petrovich: He would go up to the gym before shoot-around and go on the Stairmaster at the highest level, 10, and do it for an hour. Come down to shoot-around dripping wet. Go through shoot-around for an hour or whatever it was. Then go back up to the gym and do it again. But before he went to the gym the second time, he called me over. He said, could you do me a favor? I said, what is it? Can you shag some balls for me? Everybody else left. I said, sure. So he's he, An hour we spent, Mike, he's shooting threes. And yeah. then he went back up to the gym for another half hour or whatever on the Standmaster. I never in my life saw anybody work harder than this man when, when uh, he died in the, in the automobile accident on the Autobahn. Uh, it just really, it really hurt.
0: Yeah, no, and you you know, guys, guys like that, you just wonder what if, and uh, you know. But I, Howard, you know, I, Larry Bird was, uh, you know, I I think set the tone for a lot of guys because we would get to the Boston Garden for a game at about six o'clock, and you'd hear a ball bouncing in the uh, in the garden, and it was Bird, and he'd get up five, six hundred shots before a game. And then he went up to the concourse and ran two or three miles before the game even started. Um, So, you know, there's, there's no secret as to why these guys are the best at what they do. Everybody thinks, or some people might think that they just show up and it happens. Uh, There is so much hard work. Michael Jordan may have been the greatest practice player ever. I mean, Johnny Bach came to the nets or came to the Hornets when I was, announcing and we would talk about him when he was with the Bulls and you know Jordan's work ethic was beyond anything and Kobe Bryant fashioned himself after that too so I, it just hard work goes in with all the great players
1: uh, this uh, this constant uh, barroom argument Jordan or LeBron who's the greatest of all time and to that I say that's a bs argument because Michael was the greatest of his time LeBron's the greatest of his time end of story well, Howard, I'm I'm of
0: the opinion of that there is a goat herd. There's not a goat. There are a bunch of goats. I mean, Kareem was. I'm sorry, I played again. I, I had to guard Kareem. He was the only person I felt I had no answer for whatsoever. And my being out on the court was ancillary to what he was going to do. Mm. Bill Russell, I think, was one of the, is a goat. Will Chamberlain is a goat. If you think of the theme here, I'm going with centers because we don't talk about them too much. Hmm. There are there are Larry Bird is a goat. Magic Johnson is a goat. Um, you know, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson changed the game. They raised the height level. Before Larry Bird got in the league, small forwards were 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, Bobby Dandridge, Bernard King. He made, he made small forwards 6'9". You know, Magic Johnson made point guards have to be 6'5". Uh, you know, there I, I refuse to say that there's one player who is the greatest of all time. I, I just, I won't go down that road. I don't believe it.
1: No, I, I, I would agree. Look, I had, uh, I'll let you go after this. Uh, I walked into the Laker locker room uh, before a game with the Nets, and Kareem was sitting over there by himself, and I asked the PR guy of the Lakers, can I go over and talk to Kareem? What, is it a problem? He goes, no. He says, he talks to a lot of people. Go ahead. I walked over and I said, Kareem, I said, I'm Howard David. I'm a radio broadcaster for the Nets. You got a few minutes? He goes, sure, sit down. He says, where are you from? I said, Brooklyn. He goes, I'm from Brooklyn. I said, I know that. He said, uh, where'd you go to school? I said, Erasmus Hall High School, where Billy Cunningham went. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that school. I played against him when I was at Powell Memorial. I said, uh, okay. He goes, now the bigger question, he says to me, what type of baseball fan were you or are you? I said, well, I was a Dodger fan. He goes, sit down. (laughs) We, You know, Mike, we sat there for a half an hour giving trivia questions to each other about the Brooklyn Dodgers. He got them all right. I got them all right. He stood up. He said, I'm going to pat you on the back because you're at my level when it comes to Dodger trivia. (laughs) I said thank you. That's coming from you, that's a big deal. Uh, he's,
0: um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think you have to catch him at the right time, and he's, he's softened a lot after, uh, after his playing days. But, um, you know, very, very articulate, well thought out man, very bright. Um, and you know, and I'm, I'm glad you caught him at a good time. And you, there was some connectivity between the two of you, which uh, yeah. certainly helped things out. But the only the only other guy who in the NBA who went to Power Memorial was Dick Bavetta. Ah, bet, bet you didn't know that. A long time no, yeah, no. He, he's a, he's an alum of Power Memorial, which that school doesn't exist anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the, he and Kareem had that in common.
1: Dick Bavetta was a very was a big favorite among broadcasters. He always used to bring chocolate chip cookies and put it down in front of you when he was working the game.
0: Well, that was, that's when, that's when referees weren't, weren't robots. They were, they they were like beat cops who talked to you and they, they, they diffused a lot of situations before they ever happened. And plus they did it with only two out on the floor instead of three. Um, I, I miss those guys.
1: I had a lot of great relationships with, with all the
0: referees.
1: Mike appreciate it. Always great talking to you. I haven't talked to you in a while, but I'm glad we had this time to spend sometime we had a lot of laughs when you were with the nets and i was doing the games and it was a it was a fun time but uh you stay safe my friend i will howard it's been great spending time with you and uh let's stay in touch you got it pal he's mike jiminski former nba player former star at duke uh, and the only guy i could actually say graduated high school at the ripe old age of 16 or 17 either way uh that that's pretty impressive Thanks again, Mike. Thanks again. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Howard. So, when I look at where this Final Four is now, yep. I'm going to go with the. Uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm going to go with the chalk. I'm going to say UConn wins it. If they don't, so be it. But I got a soft spot in my heart for FAU. It would be great if they did it.
0: Well, and I, you know, I'm an ACC guy. And well, let me let me tell you a quick story too. I'm sorry we didn't. Um, Jim Larinaga recruited me in yeah. high school. <laughs> When, uh, in 1975, he was an assistant at Davidson and, uh, and his wife, Liz at the time wanted to go with him on this recruiting trip. So both of them were in my house in Monroe, Connecticut recruiting me. And then he went up, he followed Terry Holland up to, uh, up to Virginia and was an assistant there before he got his head coaching start. So I've, I've known, I've known Jim coming up on 50 years now. Wow. So it, it's been he's he's been wonderful to me and his his wife is uh, Liz is fabulous. Um, and I got my home state, Yukon, and, uh, and one of the Hurley brothers, you know,
1: coaching there. So it uh, should be a should be an interesting Final Four. Well, dad was a great high school coach at St. Anthony's in Jersey City, but never got yep. to the college ranks, which kind of surprised me. I'm wondering why. But anyway, got to run, Mike. Thanks again. You stay safe. All right, Howard, take care. He is Mike Jeminski, uh former NBA star with New Jersey and with Philadelphia. We played a little bit with Charlotte and then wrapped it up with Milwaukee. Uh, and in college, of course, obviously with Duke and knows what it's like to be in a Final Four. Man, I don't. Uh, I've seen it. I've called games. But man, that's that's like going to the mountain. You know, it's really a rough thing. Rough thing. You folks stay safe. Have a great day. Thanks for being a part of Howard David Live.